Did you know that there are 27 million slaves in the world today? And according to our guests, that number is conservative. These people, men and women, boys and girls, are trafficked illegally for sex and labor. Worse yet is that Milwaukee is known as the pimp capital of the United States. To help explain this, we've invited Morgan Young, an immigration and poverty attorney based in Madison. She's also with the Wisconsin Coalition Against Domestic Violence. She spoke on human trafficking in the U.S. and Wisconsin in particular as part of the League of Women Voters of Dane County's Issues Forum on March 4, 2015 in Madison. You can download handouts from the talk at our website, lwvdanecounty.org. Thank you for inviting me to come and talk to you about this. Uh, human trafficking is very much the topic du jour these days, but it's because finally light has been shed on a really serious problem that's been going on for a really long time. Um, I kind of came into working on trafficking because there's a lot of overlap with trafficking and other forms of violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, work that the coalition works on. Um, while I am the immigration and poverty attorney, my background is in family law, so I do a little bit of everything. Um, and we're not going to focus on uh, foreign-born victims today. We're going to talk about trafficking as a whole. So really quickly, what do you think of when you hear human trafficking? Just shout it out. Everyone's seen stuff in the news, but probably been to some other presentations. What do you think of? And I'll repeat them for the group. Sex trafficking, labor, I heard. What else? Slavery, children. Runaways. Anything else? I think those are some of the big areas. Those are some of the most vulnerable individuals that we see. So that is going to be what we talk about in large. If I'd asked that question maybe 10 years ago, I think people would have talked more about like the taken situation or, you know, a Russian Lolita, young, young Eastern European or Russian girl that was swept into some kind of, you know, organized crime brothel situation of sex trafficking. And that certainly happens. Um, and that certainly happens abroad and domestic. But that's not necessarily what the victims look like in Wisconsin. So we're trying to kind of change the idea of what we think of when we think of trafficking victims. Um, I work on both labor and sex trafficking. We see more sex trafficking victims just by you know the numbers in Wisconsin and in the country. Um, that could also be because labor trafficking can sometimes be harder to detect um, the type of operations. So we see about 75% sex trafficking cases, 25% labor trafficking. But sex trafficking and sex work is often a form of labor trafficking. We kind of draw these distinctions. Um, they aren't necessarily there. The lines get really blurred, and we'll talk about a little of that. So, so everybody's on the same page. When we're talking about human trafficking, we're talking about, by definition, obtaining, recruiting, harboring, or transporting human beings by force, fraud, or coercion for forced labor or sexual exploitation. And international law, federal law, local law is all based on this general definition. Varies a little bit, but that's the framework. And when we're talking about human trafficking, we're talking about a violation of human rights, and we're talking about modern-day slavery. So I heard someone say slavery. Um, that is absolutely what it is. It is debt bondage, peonage, people working in a situation that they can't leave for a variety of reasons because of force, fraud, or coercion. So quick show of hands. Pop quiz right at the beginning. In the world today, who says there are no slaves? 
All right. Two million slaves? Or who says 27 million slaves? All right, so 27 million is the answer. And that's a really old statistic. That's the last number we saw put forward. I think it was in 2010. So assume that that number is even higher. But we're talking about a lot of human lives. We're talking about a lot of individuals that don't have the freedom to work as they would see fit. In comparison, just for point of reference, how many people were taken from Africa during the entire transatlantic slave trade? Who says 13 million? Few. Who says 30 million? A few. And who says 1 million? All right, so it's actually 13 million, and obviously the population of the world is larger today, but just in contrast, there are more slaves living in the world today than there have ever been at any time in the globe's history. And so, is slavery illegal everywhere? Legal in some countries? Or legal everywhere? Technically, slavery is illegal everywhere. We have UN conventions and international law that prohibits slavery. We have federal law that prohibits it on you know, a national level. And we have local law. Um, that means laws aren't being followed whether it's in our country or in other countries, we're not seeing the enforcement. So that's something that my coalition spent some time working on. How can we strengthen laws, um, protect the ability for law enforcement and prosecutors to you know, give justice to these individuals? And in other countries, that's a lot harder. But technically, slavery is illegal everywhere. So some of the statistics, because I think people are always curious about this, we said the 27 million, again, that's probably a lowball estimate, but it's because the average cost of a human being is a few hundred dollars. Some places you can buy a kid for $50. That's really cheap. Um, that makes the annual profit from human trafficking 32 billion, and again, that's a very low estimate probably, that's an old number. We're looking at about 15,000 people being brought into the United States every year, so it's a very small fraction of the actual number of trafficking victims. One million children are exploited by global commercial sex trade every year, and 300,000 of those children are at risk in the United States. The United States is actually the number one sex tourist destination in the world. It's not somewhere in Southeast Asia, it is the United States. Um, there's a market here, there's obviously a demand here, and where there's a demand, the supply you know, will come, and that, that's troubling. When we're talking about how this enterprise looks as a whole, you know, the profit coming in, the number of people involved, we know that it is, after drug, tra drug dealing, human trafficking is tied with the illegal arms trade as the second largest criminal industry in the world. It's the fastest growing. I would argue that if you actually added up the money made by each individual you know, who is being exploited, whether for sex or labor, the amount of money that their trafficker makes off of each transaction for that person, it would easily become number one. And the difference between human trafficking and drug trafficking or the arms trade is you can only traffic drugs so many times. They can only be passed around until they're consumed. You can only hand over you know, weapons, guns, things like that, until they're used you can keep reselling a person. And maybe their value changes, and maybe what they're used for changes, but you can continue exploiting that person throughout their lifespan. So there are some dynamics that are fairly universal for trafficking. We know that it's largely a hidden crime because victims do not self-identify. If you had a victim sitting in front of you that was currently being trafficked and you said, hey, are you a victim of human trafficking? 
very, very few would say yes, because that's not what they think is going on. They see the situation they're in very differently. Um, so it's hard to identify. It's hard for law enforcement to identify. It's hard for people that are trained to be able to see these dynamics at play and identify a victim in the situation. And partly it's because victims don't look like a certain thing. They don't look a certain way. It's men, women, children, every race, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, sexual orientation, nationality, religion. But the more vulnerable you are in general in society, the more vulnerable you're going to be to traffickers. So women and girls from impoverished areas are most at risk. Um, we are also seeing a surge of, especially in the teen population, LGBTQ teens, um, transgendered youth that are very, very vulnerable to traffickers these days because they don't have a safe place to be often in their home. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, again, we're looking at force, fraud, and coercion to convince people to join this life. This isn't something where they say, yes, I want to go be a slave for this person. They're often agreeing to something very different. Um, or they're doing things that they need to survive and they think it's a temporary situation and then they are you know, stuck in that position because of their trafficker. They're controlled by violence or the threat of violence and they're deprived the right to leave. So sometimes there's a really, really gray area between whether this is a human trafficking case or like a case of general exploitation. Um, and we see this a lot, especially with um, foreign-born citizens that are maybe working in less than ideal conditions, um, not making fair labor wages, being treated horribly, but they're making the choice to do that and they could leave. They are not stuck in a situation through debt bondage or something like that that would prevent it. It still is a violation of a number of different laws and the person that is exploiting them can get in trouble but sometimes it doesn't quite rise to the level of trafficking. So that's, that's hard. I answer a lot of questions about that. Um, when we talk about this climate of fear, there are a lot of things that keep a trafficking victim in that situation. It could be actual fear of physical harm to themselves or someone that they care about, children. It is very, very common, especially in sex trafficking, for the trafficker to impregnate um, the victim and then be able to control them through this child that they share in common. This is also hard if someone gets out of the life but now still shares a child in common with their trafficker that they are expected to give over for visitation and have this ongoing interaction with the person. So it's really hard to make a clean break for a number of reasons. There's complete economic dependence on the trafficker. This is the person who's taking any money they earn and the one who's doling out food, shelter, clothes, uh, illegal controlled substances, perhaps there's drug addiction. It's very common for there to be AODA issues to kind of dull the pain as a survival coping mechanism, but the person supplying that drug is often the trafficker. Uh, emotional dependence. A lot of trafficking victims feel that they are in an intimate relationship with their trafficker. It's not, if you have, you know, a 16-year-old girl who comes in who's clearly being trafficked, she thinks that her pimp, her trafficker, is her boyfriend. This is someone that she is getting some kind of emotional connection from that she wasn't getting elsewhere, and she has been conditioned to think that this is all she deserves. There's a fear of law enforcement often because they are committing crimes frequently. Even if you're not engaged in the act of criminal prostitution or something like that, it's very common for traffickers to make their victims do things like shoplift or commit some other kind of petty crime that they can hold over their head that I'll report you, you know, and you'll get in trouble. And depending on your socioeconomic status, depending on your 
immigration status, that threat can be a lot higher than someone who knows the laws and knows, well, shoplifting isn't that big of a penalty. Or it could be a trafficker who has, you know, a quota that the girls have to reach every night. And if they haven't made their quota turning tricks or doing whatever with their dates, they might need to go steal something to have that money to bring home. So there are a lot of ways that crimes get committed in the act of being trafficked. Obviously, there's guilt. Um, there's guilt that they let this happen to themselves, that they have turned into a person that they didn't want to be. There's a stigma. Um, obviously, especially when we're talking about sex trafficking, commercial sex is not something that is you know, greatly looked upon in our society. We frown upon people that find themselves in that work. And if you have no control of your you know, ongoing sex work, then that is something that produces a huge stigma. They think that the abuse or the situation might change. They might be ambivalent over making changes. This is the only life they've known. They don't know what else they would do. They don't have job skills necessarily. They don't have the education. They don't have the resources, both you know, financially or through people in their lives. They've often been isolated from those that you know, they had a connection to. And if you are an undocumented individual or a foreign-born national who's had your documentation taken from you, not being able to prove who you are and what your status is is a real hindrance for people feeling like they can leave the situation. So when we talk about sex trafficking and labor trafficking and the work that I do with domestic violence, we think a lot about power and control. So power and control and the power and control wheel as a principle is very common when we're talking about domestic violence. But a lot of the same principles apply, though you'll see some different things. So what we, thought, we like to think about is we have sexual violence and the physical violence, and that's what we think of usually when we think of violence. But then there are all these other forms of abuse and violence that are really getting at the power and control of one individual over another. Whether it's threats to harm someone or someone they love, whether it's the economic abuse of not letting someone keep the money that they've earned, using children, emotional abuse, intimidation, the isolation. They don't have anyone to turn to. Um, they've been told that no one's going to believe them, that they're just a dirty whore, or you know they deserve this. So they really are isolated. So we see a lot of these different dynamics at play. And the one of the ways the wheel is used by service providers is people might recognize that a couple of these things are happening to them, but they would never label it as abuse of any kind, whether it's domestic violence or human trafficking. And they might think it's because those things are normal. But when they're shown the visual of seeing it in a bigger pattern, Sometimes that's like the aha moment where people are like, oh, oh, you're telling me this isn't healthy, that all relationships aren't like this, and that can kind of lead to some self-discovery. We have a back page of it where it's really based on the poverty and the deception. It's taking advantage of often desperate people. We see, especially when we're talking about trafficking, the exploiting the feminization of poverty. Women and children are the most impoverished populations in our world and women's need to care for their children, to provide for their children, to make money to sustain themselves is a real big threat to hold over someone's head. We also have the emotional coercion, male privilege and crime, which we see in both domestic violence and trafficking, the minimizing, denying, and blaming of the trafficker by, uh, of the trafficker to the victim. So if they do actually sense that something's wrong or they bring something up, they're poo-pooed, they're told that it's just you know the way it is and that they're making a big deal out of it. They're made to feel like they're being crazy. Um, and obviously using children and using deception. 
So because my title is immigrant, uh, Immigration and Poverty Attorney, I do work with the immigrant population quite a bit. And in addition to the barriers that I just mentioned, obviously there are certain groups that have additional barriers. You know, I think of them as being layered on top that make it hard um, to leave the life and it makes it hard for these victims um, to seek the services that they are entitled to. So obviously with immigrant victims, we might have a limited language ability. Uh, we might have the fear of law enforcement, whether it's because they don't understand that law enforcement in this country does have some mechanisms to protect them, or maybe they come from a country where law enforcement, the government, everybody's corrupt, and the law enforcement's not a safe place to go to for you know any kind of assistance. Just not understanding our system and any differences can be a real hindrance. Um, in addition to law enforcement, just not understanding our rights and laws. Technically, if you are an immigrant victim of crime or an immigrant living in the United States, regardless of your status, you can be completely undocumented. You can go get a divorce. You can go to court for custody and placement of your children. You can sue somebody in small claims court. You should be able to call law enforcement You know, if you're the victim of a crime. And obviously, there are issues with that um, and with political climate shifting and changing, we see ongoing issues with this, um, but they don't even know that those systems are supposed to be accessible to them. Likewise, they don't know what services are available. They don't know that legally they might be entitled to things as a victim of a crime. They have a clear fear of deportation, and there are a lot of cultural considerations. Um, I've worked with some victims in the past who were in a horrible situation, um, basically sex slaves as mail-order brides, but they had no interest in returning to their home country because they would bring shame upon their family. That that would be worse for them than remaining in very rural northern Wisconsin at the time with no resources, no community, that was a better life for them than returning to the home country and bringing that shame on their family because they were supposed to have been the one that got out, that got this great life in the United States. So there might be these other cultural considerations that might make it hard to convince somebody to leave the life that they found themselves in. In Wisconsin, we have a large Native American population, and we have heard time and time again from traffickers that Native girls are particularly of interest to them. Does anyone have any idea why they think Native girls are so valuable to a trafficker, specifically for sex trafficking? We've heard from uh, pimps that have been caught that some Native girls look ethnically ambiguous. So if you have a John who has a fetish with a certain type of girl who's generically of that skin tone and coloration, you can dress up and tell the story about Native girls, uh, which is really scary for a population that's already very at risk. And the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center has done a lot of work around this. They've done a lot of studies. They go out and they do a lot of speaking engagements about sex trafficking. But they formed this kind of research study where they were bribing sex trafficked girls to come in, women and girls, to come in and do you know interviews with them. They'd give them gift cards. They'd give them gas cards um, to make sure that people would actually show up. And they found some really interesting things. Um, they found that there was a consistent list of vulnerable and risk factors that made this population extra vulnerable to trafficking. We saw a lot of extreme family poverty in the studies, uh, higher rates of runaway and homelessness in native populations than in the general population. You've probably heard about the gangs, uh, Native American gangs on the reservations, so the gang influence that was often involved in their families. These are cousins. These are people that they trust and are related to them or in their greater family circles of the extended family. 
We know there's a huge history of physical and sexual victimization in that population. We know that it goes back to the schools, uh, it's being passed down through the generations, um, and it's a really hard cycle to break. We know that there's a really high rate of AODA abuse um, in the population, and parents and guardians might have addictions. There might be other female relatives or friends already engaged in prostitution. There are fewer ties to cultural support for these victims that are later identified. Um, there might be emotional distress and drug and alcohol use because of it. And there's a much higher dropout rate from high school and a lower set of workforce skills. So of the population that came in for this study, these were consistent themes they saw. This makes it really challenging to provide the appropriate resources to a group that's already so you know, underrepresented in the services. I'm going to talk about some of the myths that I hear a lot, because I think this gets to some of the misconceptions. Um, one of the things we still hear a lot is that trafficking is another word for smuggling, that they're very similar. This has been a really tough sell when we're talking to law enforcement, especially law enforcement that's ever worked in a border community. So we're talking about the Mexican border, the Canadian border, or even in Wisconsin, the international port coming into Superior. Um, so it's a tougher sell, but people consent to be smuggled. In fact, they pay large sums of money to be smuggled across a border. And by definition, if you are being smuggled, you are crossing an international border. Human trafficking doesn't require any transportation anywhere. I can traffic someone in this room. I don't have to go cross any borders, make any you know, large moves from anywhere. Um, and you can't consent to being trafficked. Trafficking by its nature is exploiting someone through force, fraud, or coercion. So they aren't the same thing. There are plenty of people who are smuggled, who pay a lot of money to be smuggled, who then become trafficking victims when they enter the United States because suddenly the price of their trip just went up and they have to work it off. Um, where there's debt bondage that follows. And whether that is sex or labor trafficking, it is not at all uncommon for people that have paid a coyote or somebody else a lot of money to help them cross the border to then hand them off to a trafficker on the other side. And so even though they committed a crime against our nation's borders under federal law, at the point they become a trafficking victim, they're supposed to be treated as a victim by the system. They're supposed to be given the rights and privileges of victim status privileges, if you can say that, um, and protected, and we have laws that protect them. But that's sometimes a tough sell when people want to say, but they did something illegal. Sure, they consented to something illegal, but now they're a victim, and we need to treat them that way. Uh, myth number two, trafficking victims are always immigrants or in this country illegally. The vast majority of trafficking victims in the United States and Wisconsin are U.S. citizens, um, people that were born here, um, people that look like your neighbors sometimes, depending on where you live. And we know that people um, that are immigrant victims are largely not here as undocumented individuals. The vast majority of them enter the United States with appropriate documentation. Human trafficking only occurs in illegal underground industries. It certainly doesn't. I think Jan will talk a little bit about that. Uh, I think this kind of harks back to when we thought about organized crime being involved. But it can be, you know, neighbors with one victim that's in their house in some form of servitude. It can be high school boys recruiting their classmates and pimping them out. Um, it is not necessarily the big industries, though there are certainly trafficking victims in those industries as well. And lastly, that sex trafficking is the only form of human trafficking where sexual violence is present. 
And this kind of gets to why I'm involved in this work at all. And we know that statistics are as high as about 80% of labor trafficking victims are also sexually assaulted. It's another power and control thing. It's a way to exert force and control over another individual. It's not sexual, it's not about sexual gratification. Much like rape, it's about power. So there are some overlaps. I've talked a lot about the domestic violence, the sharing of physical and sexual violence as a trait between the two, the isolation, the threats of harm. And anyone who is vulnerable already is going to be more vulnerable to a trafficker. And that includes people who have already suffered domestic violence. They are much more vulnerable to a trafficker because they've already suffered that level of abuse. And I like to remind people that trafficking victims aren't running to the pimp. They're running away from something worse. And what we often see them running away from is child sexual abuse. The numbers are really high, but it becomes a very slippery slope. When someone is abused as a child, there's the link of love and sex and abuse leading to the violation of boundaries, guilt and shame, and pretty soon we're talking about sexual exploitation of children, being a runaway, being homeless, having to do you know, sex for stuff, survival sex. Um, those phrases are controversial, but I think they are a lot of what we're seeing you know, in the field. It's not necessarily people being put out to work the tracks the first time they run away from home. It's there is someone who's maybe been grooming them, someone who is a trusted person in their life that uh, sees them as vulnerable and says, sure, you can sleep on my couch tonight, but I'm going to need you to do something for me first. Um, and pretty soon, you know, they're engaged in an activity that they don't feel like they have the choice because they need something to eat. They need some place to sleep. And then after a while, the grooming continues, and this person is being turned out as a commercial sexual exploited child. Um, so someone is now making money off of them. They're not just doing things they need to do to survive or because they were abused as a child that's led up to that. They have been groomed. You know, they've been groomed from the abuse that they suffered as a child all the way to someone now making money off of them. There have been a lot of studies that look at victims of trafficking that have been identified as victims of trafficking, especially commercial sexual exploitation of children, and they want to see what the home life was like before this. One of the stats that isn't on the slide, and I've heard varying numbers, but of children who are recognized as commercial sexually exploited kids later in their lives, the vast majority, and we're talking like 70%, at one time have been in the foster care system. So there was something that was wrong in their home life that they entered the foster care system, and the system is clearly flawed because they were still vulnerable and became a victim afterwards. Um, there was a European study of 212 adolescent and adult women, so ages 15 to 45, that found that 59% had pre-trafficking exposure to sexual or physical abuse, 12% had forced sexual abuse before they were 15, and 95% experienced physical or sexual abuse while they were trafficking. There was a study uh, in the United States in 2012 that declared that running away from home or foster care placement is common and perhaps clearly demonstrates how early trauma results in behavior that places a child at risk for subsequent abuse. And then we think about the trauma bond that's involved. When exposed to constant threat, seeming acts of kindness on the part of the abuser create an emotional bond whereby the victim may see the abuser as their protector and begin to sympathize with and care for the abuser. So we're talking about Stockholm Syndrome, basically. And in this study, they found that there was a clear trauma bond in 24% of the kids. And the longer they're with that trafficker, the tighter the bond is. 
Breaking Free is a great organization in the Twin Cities that um, does a lot of work. If you are on Facebook and you like them and follow them on Facebook, you'll see about a lot of the initiatives they're working on. They did a study to see what are the women and girls that are coming through their doors dealing with. 60 to 90% were without safe housing. So if they weren't staying there, they didn't have someplace else safe to go. 71% of the women had PTSD. 85% of the victims were victims of child sexual abuse, rape, or incest. 83% were victims of assault with a deadly weapon by the time they came to the program. 75% were physically abused as a child. 57% had been victims of kidnapping. 95% were chemically dependent by the time they got to the program. And over 90% had criminal records. If you have a criminal record and you need serious AODA treatment, that is a long road to get you know, to the point where you could have stable housing and employment. And that is something that I think service providers are finding to be a consistent barrier. So quickly in Wisconsin, we started collecting data in 2008. Um, they're trying to find some more money to redo this UW-Whitewater study that was done. But even back then, we knew that there was trafficking in more than half of the counties. It had been identified as trafficking in 2008. 15% were minors, 75% were sex trafficking, and 20 were labor. By today, we know that there have been cases of trafficking in every county in the United, or every county in Wisconsin. A lot of trafficking. Uh, Milwaukee is the pimp capital of the United States. That's one of the reasons we have so much trafficking. Uh, the last time I talked to the detectives at the uh, Sensitive Crimes Unit in Milwaukee, they had 155 open cases. That's 155 separate traffickers. And those are just the ones being prosecuted. That's a lot of traffickers. Uh, and they've gone so far as to reappropriate the Milwaukee Brewers logo, excuse my language, as money over bitches. So M, the O, and the B. And some pimps are tattooing themselves with this. It's a Milwaukee home, homegrown thing. Uh, the Milwaukee Homicide Review put together a study over two years of 77 identified exploited youth in Milwaukee. I don't think that the findings were surprising. I think they confirmed a lot of the statistics we saw. And again, this is just the Milwaukee community. But an overwhelming majority, 92% were female. Nearly 70% of the youths had been reported missing at least once. So these were runaways. But there were runaways that had someone that cared about them. So how can we identify this before it happens? Someone's still reporting these kids missing the majority of the time. About 29% of the youths had been sexually assaulted by non-caregivers, by and large. And the racial makeup was pretty representative of Milwaukee's poor. 78% black, 18% white, 3% Latino, and 1% Indian. The kids came from all over, not just Milwaukee. So they were identified in Milwaukee as victims, but they came from Chicago. They came from Wapaka, which is in central Wisconsin, next to my home county. They came from all over. Um, again, same statistics, the majority female. And then you can see the age differences. And we know that the average age of entry to prostitution is between 12 to 14. And so presumably, if you are a youth and you are prostituting yourself, you're actually a trafficking victim, because you can't consent to that. There's something that has forced you to think that this is your option. Um, so the numbers that they picked up in Milwaukee were a little bit higher. We have a map of calls to the national hotline. Again, these are just calls to the national hotline. These are not just all the trafficking cases. But it represents that there is trafficking being identified and called in from around the state. 
So in 2013, which is the last, you know, chunk of data they've given us, there were 197 calls from Wisconsin. And it's like, oh, well, the northern area of the state is clear until you look at the Minnesota map. So the Twin Ports is a huge hot spot because of the international port. So Duluth and Superior is seeing a lot of action. And people move around a lot. Similarly, we have Illinois, and we have a huge hotspot in Chicago. We have trucking routes running across the bottom of our state, and we see, see women, girls, boys, men being moved around a lot. So people say, what can we do? What can you do if you think you've identified somebody? Um, it's always okay to call the national hotline. They put people in contact with local resources. So there is both the number, 1-888-373-7888, they also have a text option, which is really nice because lots of times trafficking victims don't have the option of making a phone call, but they can maybe fire off a text really quickly, like in the bathroom when someone's not watching them. So the text number is 233733. You've been listening to Human Trafficking by Morgan Young, an attorney with the Wisconsin Coalition Against Domestic Violence. This was one of the Issues Forum, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County, and held on March 4, 2015, in Madison, Wisconsin. For more information, go to our website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers, and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County, and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning. This event was recorded and produced by Minds Eye Audio in Madison, Wisconsin.